Georgia here with my producer hat on just to let you know that this episode uh, with Jamie Garcia Iglesias is uh, one that contains what might be considered adult content. We do discuss some sex stuff. Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the humorous side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna, and today we have Jamie. Hello. So Jamie is joining us from sociology. So uh, Jamie is also our first real guest who isn't also a host. Very excited to uh, get into the phase of the podcast where we're interviewing not each other. (laughs) So Jamie, um, if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in Manchester. So I'm Jamie, I'm, I'm from Spain, um, but it's my master's in, in Nottingham and then decided to come here to Manchester just for funding reasons, because um, it offered me more money than anywhere else, which is not a lot of money, just more than everybody else. <laughs> um, and then um, my project essentially deals with uh, bug chasing, which is a fetish among gay men, um, in which they fetishize HIV infection and actually want to have it. Uh, they say they chase it, so they have intentional risky sex in order to to get infected. The problem with this is that we don't really know how much of it is happening or whether it's happening. So whether it's an online fantasy that people just talk about in Twitter and Tumblr um, or something that they are actually doing offline. So my research essentially tries to assess how much of it is happening, what it means for the people who are doing it, because it may mean very many different things from self-harm to pleasure and then um, essentially what kinds of experiences they've had while doing it. When Jamie first told me about his research, I remember being very surprised that this was uh, sort of a fetish that was apparently quite uh, quite common. Um, so how was it that you sort of became aware of this as a possible field of research? So. You're right, it, it's more common than even I expected uh, when I started this, this project. And it all came through a book by an author called Tim Dean from the University of Illinois. And he talks about bearbacking and book chasing. And bearbacking is having sex without condoms among gay men, and book chasing is having sex without condoms with the intent of contracting HIV. Uh, and in this book, he talks about that. I read my book during, um, during the undergrad and I was quite shocked and quite distraught, to be honest. So. I thought there was something interesting in that ultimate horror and ultimate shock I was feeling. Why was I feeling that about that kind of sex and not about the hundreds of children killed every day in Iraq or in Afghanistan? Um, So I thought it was really interesting, but I didn't have the tools or the emotional strength to take on that research during my undergrad. So I came back to it during my master's. I did some philosophy for my master's, so I approached it from a more philosophical queer theory perspective. But I really wanted to get deep down in the empirical side of it, assessing, talking to people. Um, there was a total absence of interviews or any sort of reliable ethnographic material. And I thought, you know, it cannot be that these people are only crazes and weirdos. There must be people who have normal lives, whatever normal means, um, and who really have this as part of their sexual lives. And what does it mean for them? Do they live well with it? Do they... Uh, hate themselves, do they not? So that kind of research I was very interested in conducting. 
that's a really interesting insight actually into your route into sociology because mm-hmm. I think you said was your undergrad in English literature yes, yes. so you have done uh, an English literature undergrad a master's in philosophy and now a PhD in sociology that's a really interesting academic journey to uh, to have gone from something that's very much in the arts and humanities to really the, the fringes of science and the social sciences what's what was that experience like well looking back at it now it could seem like it but to be honest my my undergrad even though it was english there was a big part of it that was more in the cultural studies section i was really interested and attracted by that i did consider doing a phd in english i would have enjoyed it probably but i thought and this is a very pragmatic approach that there was no money (laughs) <laughs> in, in, in pure humanities and there's no money and the moment you start talking about public health about sexuality about HIV about prevention or support in any kind of grant application it's much more likely that you will get funded so I felt it was necessary to, to take that step in order to guarantee any sort of future employment but at the same time even today even though my work would be classed as sociology there are still large parts of it that rely on textual analysis, content analysis, and narrative, uh, all those kinds of more humanities aspects, because, of course, that's, that's my background. I was wondering, because you know, coming from humanities into something that is to do with public health, mm-hmm. I was thinking of more, how do you deal with this sciencey bit of it not even you know sociology and statistics because that's a skill that is acquired but i don't have of, it yeah <laughs> that's fair but like in terms of kind of you know there is medical perspective there's psychological perspective to it which are i would imagine these are fields which are quite difficult to catch up on and how do you deal with that that's something that i myself have struggled with at the beginning but i found pretty quickly that a large part of the public health nursing kinds of approaches today have very much embraced a postmodern approach to, to health and they are very close to uh, literary studies, psychoanalysis, cultural studies. So it's easier than it seems. Um, there are of course still very orthodox, hardcore public health studies, but even those have embraced new possibilities. And then sometimes you have you just have to be, you know, the dissonant voice and say, well I don't really agree with this. I've, I've found myself moving closer towards public health over the past few, well, past few months uh, of these two years so far, in which I do accept that some of the baselines that they propose, you know, do people need help, do people not need help, do we need to intervene in this or not, those are very complex issues that I think need to be addressed in a much more profound way than just saying, well, everything is all right and we all have a postmodern view of the world and there's no truth. There are things that actually affect people and we need to consider them. I think that's a really important facet of your research is, especially as you're sort of unpicking the fantasy versus the practice <laughs> of, of bug chasing, is are people being put at risk? Are people putting themselves at risk? Or are they playing in a risky space without necessarily going all the way into full risk-taking behaviour, which is something that I always found so interesting whenever we've spoken about your research. Anytime I encounter Jamie, I'm like, what's going on in your world of research? (laughs) I want to know what's happening with your project because I've, I've never met anyone who's working on anything like it. 
I'm always interested to to hear what the newest is with uh, with your work. And I do like, I do appreciate the enthusiasm people have for the research because it's something that I'm really interested about. And I always say that you know I could have done several projects. I had several projects drafted out from PhD, uh, but this one I'm interested in. You know, it's an interest to what the fuck is going on. <laughs> when you talk about you know this fantasy reality, this risk, all those are so difficult questions because you have to kind of define what what the words you're using mean to start with. So what's fantasy and what's reality? Um, the same with what's online and what's offline. You know, we now have like Instagram, Twitter, you get notifications, you get FaceTime. Is FaceTime reality or is Skype reality? Or is it a digital online environment? So it gets very complex. And then the idea of risk is one of those key terms of like public health which also needs to be defined. And I think queer theory has a lot to do in, uh, to do in that field because when we think about risky sex, we normally think about gay men having raw sex without condoms. But then we never thought about like straight people having sex without condoms as risk. We think of it as pregnancy or reproduction. We don't think about getting passed out drunk every night as a risky space. But on the contrary, we think of gay sex parties as risky spaces. So how we define risky, uh, how we define risky spaces is it's interesting. How we define the putting yourself in those spaces, uh, for some people it may be self-harm, but for some people it may be self-care and it may be ways of addressing other underlying problems. So we, that's why I think we need to do a lot of empirical research, uh, a lot of field work of, you know, paving the ground on what's actually going on, what people think of what you're doing. Are there a lot of sociologists working on fetish more generally, or uh, is it still kind of a developing field? Well, I don't really know. So there are a number of people doing work on um, sexuality. Um, there's been some work done in fantasy and fetish, particularly around rape fantasies in women from a feminist perspective. There's a growing body of, of, of work um, about fantasy fetish in terms of media studies, uh, particularly that was evidenced uh, when Tumblr a few months ago closed down on porn. There was a lot of, you know, critical engagements with what that meant. So there's there's a growing body there. I think there's a still, you know, an issue with the ethics of it, an issue with the employability of it. So I don't think many people are engaging in that field also because there's not that much training or exposure to it while you're in your undergrad and your master's. There's last, so next year, a new module will start in the University of Essex, which will be on porn and representation, which will be the first in ever the history of the UK to be an undergrad module on porn. I suppose fetish and sexuality as well, while they're areas that can be very interesting for our like intellectualising some things which are very deeply within us, are actually, it's, it presents, as you say, kind of a big ethical challenge, but also a challenge just in terms of what is there to be gained by by really doing a deep dive on on some of these things is it very important to understand why certain fantasies and problematic fantasies exist or can we just kind of dismiss it as well you know this is sometimes that's just what people want and do we need to know why people have these fantasies in the first place i think there's it's true that it's very problematic because after all you're accessing people's private spheres. So I've done research on a forum and I have to be very careful of how I represent that forum because after all it's very much similar to a sex club, you know, you're accessing people where you're accessing spaces where these people have sex or social interaction. But I think that 
there's something to be gained, which is an exploration. And in exploration, you sometimes legitimize, but also you sometimes explain. And something that the 20 participants I've interviewed for my research so far, many of them have said, you know, I just want to, to know. Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel attracted to this virus? Some of them had more issues with it, so they were undergoing therapy, trying to curtail those desires. Some were quite happy with those desires, um, but they were all really curious as to what was making them feel that way. I think there's a value, you know, in helping people understand or at least providing some possibilities as to why they are feeling the way they are, because then they can decide whether they need to seek help or whether they're happy with it. So I think, yeah, there's there's a value in there. It does seem very interesting, you know, kind of demystifying all of those things which are hidden from public sphere. Mm-hmm. And the word fetish itself seems rather problematic because we refer to, you know, as a fetish, we tend to refer to things which are seen as, you know, risky or forbidden. When we think about just the word, not just anything that is sexy, we don't think about a naked person, we are immediately, that's a fetish. So where does this line start? What do we count as a fetish? What do we just find as, well, that's just something that is sexy? That's, I think, a key debate. So the guidelines that we have at this point come from the American Psychological Association, the APA, and they, they, in the most recent edition, they've declassified fetish or fetishism as a disorder. And they now have that idea of fetish as something that you get attracted that's not reproductive organs. And then you have this idea of a fetish disorder where that attraction is causing you some degree of stress or uh, distraught or um, anger or whatever. So I think that's an important distinction that we're getting closer to spreading. Then there's the issue like, what does count as fetish? Is that only a body part? Is it a type of costume or a type of fabric? Is it activity? Is it a particular setting? So all those things, I think, are there's a lot of research to be done because people are not open about them because researchers are not researching about them, so there's no real classification. And I think that that fact that there's a degree of obscurity about it, which, which you very interestingly said, makes it very difficult to them address some of the problems that occur within those spaces. So, for example, within the BDSM culture, we are now seeing more and more scholars and activists saying, well, we need to talk more about BDSM because it's only through that talking that we can address the issues of consent that happen in BDSM. So the same with uh, with book chasing. You would think, you know, it's a dark space, everybody's a pervert, but most of the participants I've talked to, um, they have very clear ideas of when people are consenting, when they are capable of consenting and when not. They have experiences of being assaulted. They have experiences of reacting assault. So opening up those conversations can help kind of weed out all the problems and then what's left and kind of clarifying and shedding some light on some of these communities that need support, even if they don't need care, they may still need support uh, to do the things they're doing in a healthy way, but we can't access them without more knowledge. The other thing that made me want to invite Jamie as a guest onto the podcast is that Jamie is one of the most productive PhDs that I have ever met. I have never encountered him on a day where he wasn't doing three different kinds of work and uh, you got through your field work in basically in your first year. So I would be really interested to hear from you on how you avoid burning out. I don't think anybody can avoid it. I do 
burn out from time to time and that's the times when I decide to take on an easy jet flight and go to Spain, go back home. There are weekends, I don't do anything. But then many of the activities that I've I've done throughout my PhD, which may be putting on events or participating in reading groups or that kind of thing, those are things that I would have done either way if I were not doing a PhD. So I think that kind of helps me cope with many of the things because they are things I like doing. It also is problematic because then kind of your PhD takes over your whole life. So that's the only benefit of being single. I have all the time in the world to do everything. So I would think that I'm very lucky in the sense that both the topic of my PhD, what comes with it in terms of networking, uh, publishing, attending conferences, are things that I like. Uh, and that would be my main advice for somebody starting a PhD, make sure that you like both the topic of a PhD and the working environment and method. Because if you hate networking, if you hate going to conferences, if you hate putting on events, you need to really think what you're going to do throughout those three years besides in the research and afterwards. So what does a typical week look like for you? What do you, like Monday to Friday, assuming you have the weekend off, what kind of things are you doing? So um, I kind of hold uh, two jobs. So I'm a PhD, uh, well, three jobs. I'm a PhD. I do teaching uh, as a GTA, a graduate teaching assistant. And I also work at residence hall as part of the Rest Life program. So I take care of some of the students. So essentially I would do research whenever possible. Then I would be doing teaching on Mondays, um, three to four hours. I would be attending a few meetings, either, either board meetings at the department or school level, or trying to get some event off the ground. So I'm doing something with Georgia now about well-being. So we have meetings now and again. And then every evening more or less. Uh, I go back to the residence hall, I deal with the students with their queries, concerns. And then I try to, over the weekend, get some of the writing done, if I've not managed throughout the week, or I do some volunteering uh, at the LGBT Foundation here in Manchester. Very impressive. One of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is how to maintain a healthy balance Mm -hmm. and it's good to hear a perspective. I think we've had quite a lot of perspectives recently from people who say, oh, it's, you know, it's so important to keep your work in limited hours or, you know, do this or do that. And that's the right way to do it. And actually, I think it's really important to speak to people who are like, oh, no, I just work, you know, whenever I want to and I get the work mm-hmm. done. I think that's one of the things that's so important about this process is there is not one way to do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> whenever I speak to you, you've got something interesting on the go. I like that you're always putting on events and stuff. I was just having this experience last week when I was I had uh, spent all day basically editing a podcast. Episode three had some quite big sound problems that I had to work through and I'm very new to sound editing. And I met up with my supervisor and I said, oh, I've just wasted the whole day. I haven't done anything that's, you know, helped me get towards this two and a half years away goal. And he said, okay, so what have you been doing all day? And I told him about uh, the podcast. Sorry, Althea. I know we said we wouldn't tell our supervisors, but I told him immediately. And he immediately talked me into realising that editing the podcast and doing this is actually something that's really valuable for me to be doing. It's research communication. It's a skill that I'm developing and learning. And I think you you can fall into this trap of like, if I haven't read two books today, then have I really been doing my PhD? But there's lots of different things that we all have to do. I mean, uh, that's why I 
kind of tend to make sure that I have a variety of things. So I'm meeting with people to discuss the research or I'm doing a workshop that recently there have been some boring ones. There are good and interesting workshops, which I've been to also. Academic writing is not a particularly exciting topic, though. It's, it's something that is very useful and I'm sure you know you as a non-native speaker as well can appreciate how difficult it can be sometimes writing in English. And uh, not only writing in English but trying to put down in a linear way all the things you've been messing around with over the past few months which to you come more as a diagram because everything is linked but then where do I put this if it's linked to this and this and this. So it's really... I, I would think that the writing process of sitting down and doing the writing is really difficult. But I would also say that throughout the two, three years, three and a half years, four years, five years that you're doing <laughs> your PhD, you have perhaps the last opportunity ever to devote your all your energy to something. And devote your energy to whatever you want to do. So it can be reading, but it can also be doing conferences, it can also be doing podcasts or uh, attending workshops. So you have to take advantage of that amount of space and time that you have and resources. So that's what I've been doing, because then you don't really know what's going to come out of things. So you may be to a, a, may attend a workshop which is crap and really boring and not useful, but meet somebody who's useful there. Uh, meet somebody with whom you end up collaborating or dating or whatever. So I think there's a degree in which it's important to do as much as you can, so long as, of course, your mental health and physical health allow you to. I think that's a really uh, great and insightful way of looking at it. It's actually made me think about how I'm going to use my time a little bit differently. The final thing that we do on every episode of this podcast is we ask our guests if they have something funny to share with us from their research. So I have a few anecdotes that, bearing in mind participant anonymity, um, they've been really interesting. So in the interviews I do, I ask participants about their uh, sexuality, what they do in their private time, who they have sex with, how they have that sex, whether they would like to have more sex or less sex, etc. I've had some participants have, that have gone in very, very profound detail uh, about what they do uh, in their sex lives. And what I found very challenging from the beginning was how to negotiate that kind of intimacy throughout the interview. Because one of them informs that they may be talking to you to, about sexual practices that you find terrible and creepy and horrifying and you would never engage in. Not because they're wrong, but because you just don't get turned on by them at all. And yet you still have to like ask them to tell you more, to learn more. So I struggled so much in the first set of five to, to seven interviews as to how was they going to like tell them to keep going. Because I couldn't say, oh, good or oh, cool, because what they were telling me was neither good nor cool. So <laughs> I ended up resorting to being like, well, that's so interesting. And well, that's so interesting. Until one participant um, said, you don't know what to say because you just keep telling me that everything is very interesting. That's because you don't want to say what you actually think. I'm like, no, that, that's true, but that's very interesting. So keep, please keep going. So that's kind of one of the funny aspects of doing my field work that you kind of cannot really know what you're going to find. Sometimes the most small details, such as that idea of what do I say to a participant when they are replying to my question, can reveal a lot about the dynamics of doing an interview, the power dynamics of me being the researcher, them being the participants, the topic at hand, so 
All those things come from like a small anecdotes. And then I had a participant who contacted me on Twitter because I have a Twitter for my project. And um, he was really, really interested in doing the interview very quickly, which should have raised some alarms. But I, as a very young researcher, was excited to get one more participant. So I sent him the consent form and the uh, participant information sheet over the email. Uh, and he replied uh, with a attached file called consent form, which I opened and was a naked picture of himself, which, of course, does not count as consent form or as any form of form. So I had to go back to him over to it and say, like, well, can we, like, please keep this profession? I was like, well, I will do the interview if you pass on the details of every other participant you've contacted so I can have sex with them. And I was like, well, you just have no clue how GDPR or the university work, do you? But he never contacted me again. I never contacted him again. So that was a very short love affair. <laughs> that is, That is definitely... Jamie, that's very interesting. <laughs> what an interesting story you told. <laughs> it seems I think you handled yourself very professionally in that scenario. I've got to ask, was he hot? No, that was the worst part. Oh, <laughs> disappointing. I've, I've had some issues um, in some of the interviews in the past where the participants were really, really cute. And I'm actually talking at the BSA, the British Philic Association, about how we negotiate the sexual emotions throughout the injury process because after all if you're talking to somebody for two hours over skype about what they do in their private life the dynamics can get very tense and there can be a lot of emotional engagements yeah, and it's a, a real intimacy of course involved in talking about this stuff but at the same time as a researcher you normally give away very little of yourself uh, but demand a lot of the participant there's a lot of managing of expectations and that's something that we are not normally trained in doing or that we don't talk about it's like kind of that hidden dark secret within ethnography and interview and sociology and i think we need to open it up because after all it says a lot about when can participants give consent to participate in an interview, how you're using that information, and how they are giving that information to you. Are they confiding in you because they want you to know more about themselves or because they want the project to know more about themselves or can both be detached? So that's kind of an interesting, uh, very interesting avenue of exploration. Also, you know, about how do the things that you find out make you feel yes. as, as, you know, because you're a researcher, but you're also a person. Mm-hmm. And you can feel uncomfortable. And I'm sure we all kind of sometimes come across some piece of material that we're uncomfortable with, but with me, I can just close the book and put it away. With you, it's a lot more difficult and a lot more complex and you Mm -hmm. wouldn't want anyone to feel shamed for what they feel. And I think that's why having a good relationship with your supervisor is key, because you can go to them and tell them, so this happened, this is how I feel, how do I deal with it? And the moment I realize, or the moment I think it's most significant of that, I was talking with my colleagues, is when you have all your participants on the table and you have to give them pseudonyms. And you don't want to give them, to some of them, you want to give a particular pseudonym because that person reminds you of somebody you know. But to others, you cannot find any name to give them because you don't want to give that person any name of somebody you know because that person's horrifying or that person's super creepy or that person's super cute. And that process of giving them a pseudonym, trying to find a name that both rings true to you, allows you to remind the participant, but also doesn't make you look somebody you know forever in a different way. It's a very interesting, uh, very interesting process. 
How have you solved that problem where you've had to give a pseudonym to someone that creeped you out? I've tried to maintain a degree of similarity to their actual name uh, or the name they said they had. So if they had a American male name typical of a white male born in the 60s, I kind of went back to like the internet, popular names of male in the 60s and found something that sounded similar. A few of them who refused to have or well, or whose name they gave me was less um, realistic. I went to like these name generator, uh, generators for like fictional writers online and found a name that way. And sometimes I do ask about this one. So what pseudonym would you would you like to have? And do you use where you only know someone by a kind of internet handle? Do mm-hmm. they end up with a pseudonym that's like a handle or? They will be, yes. So the participants I've gathered through forum exchanges, um, they will end up with a handle, most likely at something. The participants I've met through interviews, even though the interviews are digital, I have the consent form in which I have to sign with a name. Uh, so I try to take that. And of course, you call them, you don't call them at guy.com. What's your opinion? You, you actually call them by their name. I had just not thought about that. I So I'm going to be doing some interviews, but I'll be there with sort of named individuals mm-hmm. so I don't have to worry about pseudonyms. Yeah. But I had never thought that it might be sort of a almost a creative process. It's a very creative process. And um, I have a colleague who's doing research on um, a multicultural community in Israel. And she had a lot of problems because then she, not only did she have to find pseudonyms, but also pseudonyms that represented a particular cultural background and mm. age gap within uh, within the people. And that can get very tricky because then you don't want to give one participant the name of other participants. You don't yeah. want, it's, it gets really, really challenging. Because then you also will find participants who want and ask you to be named and to be identified because they want their voice to be heard. And that's also something very challenging to do because... Um, in some pieces of research, they have a motivation to, to be named because uh, they may be sexual assault survivors or they may be cancer survivors and they want their, their voice out there. In other cases, such as in my case, I've had to explain them very carefully, you know, you don't know where this is going to end up. I'm going to publish this as a PhD or as an article, but you never really know who's going to read it. Do you really want to? That I don't think you should. And most normally they cave in and say, okay, no, you can anonymize me. But some participants will always ask you to to actually name them. And it's your role as researcher to explain them. Actually, you need to be aware of all these other issues that are going to happen around it. This has already ended up being one of our longest episodes <laughs> uh, because I could talk about your research forever. But I know that you've probably got 20 other things to do today. <laughs> so... I'd just like to say, Jamie, thank you so much for being You're our welcome. first real guest. It's been fascinating to learn more about you and your research. Anna, thank you for co-hosting, as always. Thank you, Georgia. And uh, how do we normally end the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave that in. <laughs> we have a thing that we say. What is it? Don't tell your supervisor. <laughs> Don't tell your supervisor what you heard here, Georgia. Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at nsfppodcast. 
Have an adequately happy existence.